0: Good morning watermark today's scripture comes from acts chapter 4 verses 5 through 22. the next day the rulers the elders and the teachers of the law met in jerusalem anas anas the high priest was there and were caiaphas john alexander and others of the high priest family they had peter and john brought before them and began to question him by what power or what name did you do this then peter filled with the holy spirit said to them For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved when they saw the courage of peter and john and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with jesus but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them there was nothing they could say so they ordered them to withdraw from the sanhedrin and then conferred together what are we going to do with these men they asked Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone of this name. Then they called him in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, what is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people who were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. All right, thank you, sir.
1: Hey, good morning. Everybody good? Um, something I totally forgot about, and ooh, flying papers, and remembered while he was reading, and I'm not going to teach about it, I'm just going to mention it and keep moving. Um, Right here, this is just an extra piece of random information, okay? But right here, uh, when it says, um, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. Um, That's Socrates. He's literally engaging with Plato uh, and this, um, this small but very famous part of this trial where Socrates is standing before a a, sort of a a Sanhedrin-esque type of group and defending his own actions. And that's all. I love that. I just think it's amazing that he did that. Um, And Paul does that once too. too. They're always sort of... I had a conversation last night. Let's just talk. I I was at a wedding last night. I had a conversation with this guy. who's like a philosopher. And he's like not into the Bible religion. I just started pointing out all the places where... Paul and Peter engage with the philosophers that he was very familiar with. And he loved it. It was great. Anyways, okay. What am I doing? I'm preaching a sermon. Okay, here we go. Let's, let's pray and we're going to jump into this, uh, this, this passage, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we, we come here and we ask um, that you would, first off, give us presence of mind and heart. And allow us to be present here with each other. Um, this is a gift. Community, fellowship, family, friends, um, this is uh, a peak gift of life, and we, uh, we are thankful for it, and we receive it. We affirm it's good, and uh, we ask that you would, through this uh, engagement, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, give us what we need to hear, and um, <clears throat> I, uh, I ask that you would grant us peace, you would give us some vision of, of uh, how to move forward. Um, that you would help us to rightfully repent of the, the ways where we, that we have not lived up to the names that that we have, that we have put on, the name of, of Christ. Um, let us grasp a little more of what it means to follow you from, from these people who knew you and whose life, whose lives were directionally changed because they knew you, who were absolutely altered. Um, let us capture a little bit of what they had. Let our lives have meaning and purpose in the ways that theirs did. May what we do here somehow mean something uh, for the future of of the world that you are building. And uh, I ask that uh, you would help me to speak clearly and remember the things that I've studied and uh, bless us all. Amen. Okay, so I'm gonna start uh, right here in verse seven. It says, uh, they had Peter and John brought before them and they began to question them: By what power or what name did you do this? Okay, so, if you haven't been here recently, um, <clears throat> here's what's going on. They, Peter and John are heading to the temple to offer sacrifices because they're young Jewish men and this is what you do back then. Three times a day, you're going to go to the temple, you're going to pray, you're going to offer sacrifices uh, and do the sort of the liturgy, if you will. Um, and on their way in the East Gate, there's a man who's a beggar. He's, been, he's crippled. He's been begging his entire life right there. Every day, his friends bring him and he's, and he's healed by them. Um, and everyone is shocked because everyone's seen this guy there his entire life. And now that he's healed, he can enter into the temple. He's never been allowed to enter into the temple. That was a proclamation of David hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, and now he enters in for the first time and we find the apostles, Peter and John, standing with this guy who had just been healed, first time on like new legs, right? And he's, and he's holding on to them. And he's holding on to them while, while they're speaking. And... He's preaching the name of Jesus, and he's preaching that, like, this happened because of Jesus, not because of us. We're not holy men. Um, Jesus is with us and is bringing new life into this world, and this is one of the uh, sort of appearances of this new life right here restoration of something that is broken. And they're disrupting the temple worship with this message, and this message uh, does not go well with the leaders of the Sanhedrin. So they come and they arrest them and they take them into the courtroom. Um, it would have been this sort of room off the temple. Now, first off, they arrested him and threw him in jail for the night. Um, in the first century, jail wasn't necessarily punishment. It was like a holding pen uh, for your trial. They, they're not going to do this thing where you get to give like, bail and you leave. Um, they need to keep track of people, so they arrest people and throw them into jail before they can have a trial the next day. So they're not being punished. They're just in jail. And they um, are now in the morning... Brought before the Sanhedrin. This is sort of what the room would have looked like. It's off the uh, main room of the temple. 35 members here. 35 members over there. Some uh, seating here for the students. And some clerks, some scribes would sit there and sort of write down if they were doing any kind of sort of numbers thing. Um, But they're not. And so there wouldn't have been any scribes here. There would have been a high priest sitting right there. And uh, everybody would have been seated around. And Peter and John would have been right here with this man who had been healed. And they all knew this man too. So... Here they would have been, and they would have been drilling them with questions. And so the first question they have is, by what power or what name did you do this? By what power or what name did you do this? Now, in the ancient world, if you wanted to, um, to know where someone got their authority, they didn't have a Greek word for person. Um, they would ask, by what name are you doing this? So what they're asking is, like, who taught you? Who was your teacher? Who was your rabbi? Stuff like that. Um, they're looking for the name of, a, they're looking for a person, they're not, oftentimes we read this and we think it's some sort of mystical incantation that you quote somebody's name and now you have their power and do this thing. They're literally asking, who sent you? Whose behalf are you here on? Like, who taught you how to do any of this, these things that you're doing? Because, like, you're a fisherman. You're, like, who taught you to do this? And uh, the answer is <clears throat> it's quite complicated. And most of our time is going to be spent in the response to the answer. But the answer, real fast, goes like this. It says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, that's a, that's a huge starter, because he's gonna say some things here that he technically wouldn't have been able to say, and you'll see why in a bit, and he says them in a way that he shouldn't have been able to say them, and he's doing things he, he was technically not allowed to do, um, and it's all done by what they claim is the Spirit of God it comes over them. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders have rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no one uh, no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we can, w- must be saved. So there's several layers here. I want to work my way through them pretty uh, pretty quickly here. So it starts off, um, he says it's by, uh, by the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, um, what he's pronouncing here is a gospel proclamation, a Roman gospel proclamation. Um, if you were here a few months ago, I preached a sermon that in the podcast feed, it's called How to Get Saved. <laughs> Straightforward. Um, And in that, sort of I challenge modern understandings of what a gospel is. If you ask people what the gospel is, they're going to say all kinds of things. uh, The gospel is not limited to Christianity. It was a Roman phrase. Um, It had to do with the proclamation of three things. There is a new king. Here's how he became king. And here's what this means for the world. That's a gospel proclamation. So there was a gospel of Caesar. Um, There's a gospel of Rome. There's a gospel of Jesus. Um, And the gospel that they're pronouncing... It's it's sort of Paul does it in Romans one through four. He also Peter uh, does a bit of that here. He says uh, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Again, Christ is a Jewish king. I know that word Christ today is regularly culturally appropriated and ripped out of the context of Judaism, but it shouldn't be. It simply means it's the Jewish Davidic Messiah, the king of the Jews. That's what the Christ is. Um, so there's a new king. His name is Christ, Jesus Christ. Um, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. This is how he became king. He was God raised him up, and he has ascended to sort of his position of authority. This is the argument he's making. Um, and this man stands before you now, healed because of this. So this is a repercussion of the gospel, of the, the Jesus becoming our king. Okay? So he's making this gospel argument, which would have been pretty offensive to the people standing in front of them, um, nevertheless, this is what he's doing. He's making a gospel proclamation about Jesus. And then he launches in, in verse 11, into this psalm. It's Psalm 118. And he exegetes this psalm and he takes it and he, he changes the, the well-known, always-held-to interpretation of it. And he shifts it. He makes it about Jesus. Okay? Um, the, the psalm goes like this. Uh, it says, Jesus is the stone you builders are rejected which has become the cornerstone. So Psalm, here, let me underline that for you so we can focus on that. So Psalm 118, um, it's, a little, it's sort of a little story about some people building a structure and they pick up a stone and they go to place it and they realize, oh, it's cut weird and it doesn't fit. It's all wonky and I can't really build on top of this thing. Uh, and so they're looking at it and the builder's like, what are we gonna do? So the builders take it and they like throw it aside and they throw it in the field and they don't need it. And they continue building the structure and they get to the top of the structure and there's this piece that goes on top of the facade, which is like the most important piece. It's decorative. It's beautiful. It's meant to be there and they don't have it. And they look out and they realize this stone that they rejected has now become the cornerstone. See how that works? Like they look at it and they're like, oh, hey guys, look. Eh? Like, oh yeah. Okay. There it is. That's what that's for. It's like the Ikea thing. I have four extra bolts. I don't know. It's all together. I'm just going to put it over here, and then later on, you figure out why, um, especially if you have kids. Um, and then, so they, he does this, and then he interprets it, and he says, oh, this cornerstone, by the way, is Jesus. This, this passage has always been about God's temple, and the idea that, for the Jewish people, that God is going to build them a new temple, and it's going, it's going to be different than any temple you've seen. It's going to function different. It's going to exist differently. Um... And there's all kinds of theories about what this would mean. But the scribes had specific meanings of this. Um, and it had to do with them. And, of course, they were in power, the scribes and Sadducees and the Pharisees and their built temple that they had. And they're just looking for their Messiah, sort of their revolutionary king. But Peter takes it. He quotes Psalm 118. He reinterprets it and says, oh, the temple, by the way, it's Jesus. Jesus. Not only the temple, Jesus, the cornerstone that you cast aside, that you killed, that's that's also Jesus. Oh, and by the way, and then he gets really prophetic. And he says, salvation is found in no one else. This is what you would say about kings. This king is going to save the world. There's no one else that can save America but this person, right? Like this is how people talk today. It's all going to fall apart if this person. And that's what they would do. And that's what Peter's doing. Okay? Uh, There is... Uh, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is exactly what Augustine said about himself. Uh, I'm sorry, Augustus. (laughs) Augustus, that was later. Um, Augustus, king, the emperor. Um, This is what he said about himself. And so he's setting a pretty high bar and he's quoting scriptures and he's saying it in a way that is apparently astonishing and he's interpreting it in a way that is astonishing and they're standing before these guys And their response is where we're going to spend our time, because their response says a lot. It says this. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So I'm going to go through this piece by piece, and there's some things we need to see. Um, So I want to start off right here, unschooled. It's this word, agramatoi. Everyone say, agramatoi. Rolled your R's and everything. Good job. Agramatoi. Okay, good. Um... This word, like literally, if you look up the definition, it literally means illiterate. Um, they had never been to school. They weren't studied boys at all. Um, in fact, the op- this, what this word literally means, agramato, it's the opposite of the word gramatos, which is scribe. Like the highest, most intellectual person you could ever speak with. The keepers of all wisdom and knowledge and the keepers of interpretation of the scriptures. And, 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 and Peter and John are the opposite. They don't know anything. They can't read. That's how they see them. They can't read or write. They, they're unschooled. They don't know anything. How is it now that they stand before us and they do this? Now... If you don't know about the scribes, uh, you should. I think we tend to have a lot of misconceptions about ancient scribes. We tend to think of them like modern-day sort of professors or librarians or something, um, and we tend to think that librarians, li- libraries, as they exist today, existed in the ancient world. But they didn't. Modern libraries didn't really have a counterpart um, until later, in like Alexandria. But like at this particular time, scribes, we picture them as they're sitting and they're just writing, right? Scribe, that's obviously, we connect the word to writing, and they just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. Uh, It turns out, um, we now know scribes didn't actually write all that much, uh, except when they were trying to learn to memorize. That's when they wrote. Um, But by and large, even in in, in most ancient cultures, unless they were doing business or hanging out with a king, writing down sort of things, they they were sort of the few people that knew how to write. But in, in Judea, Judean scribes, were not as bookish as we contemplate them to be. More than anything, they were oral tradition people. They were, were, from very young, were sort of given over to a teacher whom they would sort of live in the guy's house, and he would be called the father scribe. And these boys would study under this father scribe, and they would mostly learn orally. They would learn everything. The scribes would sort of quote passages, massive passages of Scripture, and they would learn them. Um, and when you first sort of get to a new teacher, you would, you would write yourself sort of a copy of the Torah, but the whole purpose of it was not so that you could go back and read it, was so that you could memorize it, because they believe it entered you in some specific way when you wrote it. But the goal was to hide God's word in your heart, so that you don't sin against God. Like, that's what the scriptures say over and over. When you read Jeremiah, um, it, it always says that, that um, the scribes are coming to him, and they're reading him, the scrolls, because Jeremiah likely was illiterate as well. Most people were, the scribes could read and write. But usually when the scribes are reading in the scriptures, there's a Hebrew word there in the Old Testament that doesn't mean read at all. It means, it means to cry out. They're performing the scriptures. They're singing them. Um, they're rhythmic. There's a cadence. There's a way you'd move your head and your arms and you would sway and you would look at people and make hand motions. And it was an oral culture. And they went to great lengths to keep this, these texts um, orally passed down, person to person to person, accurately. And they were very incredibly accurate. And typically, they decided you would typically write something down, usually when you were ready to either, when you were trying to memorize it or when you were ready to forget it, because the wisdom should be lived. And even in the book of Jeremiah, what you see is, it wasn't the written text that had the authority. The authority came when the scribe got up and pronounced the text. It was the speaking of the word of God that gave it its authority. And so when you spoke it, you would do it certain ways um, and it would, they would all do it exactly the same to the best of their ability. And if a, if a student scribe was copying the father scribe and didn't pronounce it exactly the way the father scribe did with the right cadence, the right volume, the right mov- movements and motions, he would be like sent back to study again because you had to do it the exact way. It was a way to pronounce the word of God. It was the spoken word of God. Now, what we see here, is that these guys were unschooled. Now, we're going to come back to this in just a second because there's another word um, that I think is very important. We're going to come back to this other word. Um, The word is courage. Um, If you're using like an NIRV or I believe like an ESV, if you're still using an ESV here, um, then um, uh, that word might say boldness, um, and that's fine. There's not necessarily, again, an English word for this idea, but the idea of speaking with boldness and courage is directly connected to Speaking to somebody that with a lot of power, who has a lot of sway and a lot of status and high authority, right? Uh, it's sort of like when you see world leaders talking, they talk like you and I talk to each other. But usually when we talk to world leaders, last time you talked to a world leader, remember? Um, <laughs> you didn't talk to them like you're talking to your buddy. Like, you was like, um, yes, I have a question. And like, it's a question maybe you've had forever. And you worked on it a long time to ask it. And there's like this certain sort of like power separation thing that happens. You can't just walk up and be like, yo, what's up? How's it going? Like you can't just talk to a world leader in this way. This is, that's called speaking with boldness and courage in the ancient world. This is, I said courage like the lion, courage. Um, so, so, so bold and courageous speech was directly connected to speech of those, uh, to speak to those of high honor status. So the way that Peter and John are speaking So the Sanhedrin is unlike anyone else speaks to them outside of their own group as if they are powerful and high and one of them as if they have authority as if they speak for God in the presence of the people who also speak for God as if they're entering in saying I speak for God too and nobody would ever do this there is a way that you would do this and they're shocked By the whole thing. Peter is not trained in the law. He appears as a mighty rhetorical speaker in the presence of this public assembly. And they all notice it. It says, um, not only that, it says that it mentions the way that they quoted Psalm 118. It says, um, they were astonished simply by the way that he's sort of exegeting this passage and interpreting it because they're not um, educated people. And it says, uh, and they took note that these men had been um, with Jesus. Hold on a second. Uh, ordinary. Okay, so I'm getting ahead of myself. Ordinary men is simply people who are not scribes. They're, they're not, they don't work in the temple. They're tradesmen. They're fishermen. They're craftsmen. They learned their father's trade because they failed basically at a rabbinical school as, as boys. Uh, and we go a little farther. Um, and it says, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, Why is it when they quoted the scriptures that these men suddenly realized that they had been with Jesus? Because they had heard this type of exegeting the scriptures before. The way these guys are quoting scriptures, they had heard this. They heard this in Jesus, who several weeks earlier was in the temple doing the same thing. Jesus handled these same passages, the Psalms, all these texts. Jesus handled them, and they had heard this happen before. Um, and Jesus was also technically not trained as a scribe. And they were shocked when Jesus spoke as well. Um, oh, let's go a little farther. Um, man, I had a lot of other thoughts apparently that I was going to throw in here. I'm going to keep moving. Uh, Matthew 7, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught as someone who had authority, not as the teachers of, their teachers of the law. So Jesus, the way he's quoting the scripture, it has the cadence. It has... The volume, uh, the voice inflections, the motions, the eye contact, exactly the way that a learned scribe would pronounce this, except Jesus did it actually better than their own scribes. And Jesus, it constantly says, also was filled with the Spirit and spoke. Jesus was led by the Spirit and spoke, and Jesus, uh, by the Spirit of God, spoke to them. And, and what Jesus is doing here is the same thing Peter and John are doing there. And I think oftentimes Jesus surprised himself when he, when he talks, even himself. There's one specific place in Luke 4 where Jesus quotes the scripture and the people love it. They think it's beautiful and they're cheering him on. And then he interprets the scripture and the exact opposite happens. So Jesus says, this passage that you have just heard, here's what this means. And then it says in Luke 4, 28 to 29, And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard him. And they got up and they drove him out of the town. And they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. They were going to throw Jesus off a a cliff. Because he interpreted scriptures wrong. It's like Twitter times four. (laughs) Like, the way he interpreted the scriptures was so offensive to the scribes that are there that would have interpreted it differently. That they had to kill him. Okay? Now, Scribes had all the power of interpretation. No one else was reading the text but them. No one else knew the text but them. They had all the power. They were the gatekeepers of interpretation. And what you see is them interpreting the text in a way that preserves their position and their power and their status in the community. Uh, And whenever you see really powerful people around in the text, you're going to see scribes there. This is what scribes do. The people turn to them and they say, I need wisdom. And the scribes are the keepers of wisdom. They were the wise sages of the day. Anything you wanted to know about wisdom, you'd go to them and they know it. Not just, not just Hebrew scriptures, but the vast amounts of wisdom and knowledge that there were to be known. They had them and they knew them. And they would sit and they would pontificate on the things of life. And so everywhere you see powerful people, you're going to see scribes. The scribal interpretation was considered far better than anything the prophets had. And whenever a prophet came in, The scribes were against the prophets. And everyone was convinced that the scribes' interpretation was better than the prophets by the first century. And by the way, Jesus wildly disagreed. Jesus is regularly going going against the the, the scribes. He is always um, telling the people, look, listen to their teachings, but don't do what they do. And don't do what they tell you to do. The way Jesus is coming at things as as the prophet. He points to John the Baptist, he points to himself, he points um, to Isaiah and Elijah and Elisha. And he says, you need to listen to these guys. They are bringing you the message of God. These scribes are controlling the message of God for power and political gain and to keep the structure alive. And so the scribes and the prophets are always butting heads. And so what is the point of me telling you all this? Um... I, I want to sort of pontificate on all this for, for, for a little bit, because here's the thing: Old Israel is now being replaced by a new Israel. Jesus is reforming and reconstructing a brand-new Israel with a new king, new citizens, new lands, um, a new law. He's reconstructing a micro-Israel that would grow. And its doors would be kicked open, like Elijah and Elisha said, and Gentiles would be brought in. That would eventually become a worldwide kingdom of God. And so now you have a battle between these two, sort of two Israels. Um, Israel by the flesh, what, Roman, what Romans would call them, like Paul. Um, and Israel by faith. Those who were born of Abraham and those who believe that Jesus is king. Two different Israels, and now they're going to battle here. And it's all theological Um, but it's real. And what we find here is this is the first sort of confrontation before them all. But what you see in the leadership in these two Israels is totally different. In one Israel, it's this top-down thing where God is speaking down to the people. And Jesus confronts us. He says, you scribes always have your thumb on the people and you're pushing them down and they can never live up to your standards. You're always telling them more and more to do. And he says, but I have come so that you may be free. Um, One Israel is top-down and it is it is God speaking down to his people who need to get better. The other Israel is bottom up. It is Jesus washing the feet of the people, spending time with the lowest of the low and and, and encouraging people to have community with them and sending the spirit to be present so that they can learn from each other and grow. Two vastly different ways of having a kingdom. So I want to spend a couple of minutes here talking about leadership just for a second. I don't talk about it that often. Um, uh, but basically, here's this. Um, in leadership, I, I believe, here's the thing. Um, I, don't, I don't deny the importance of education at all. The education of the scribes, of the knowledge that they had gathered and collected. I think that's all wonderful and beautiful. Um, I we should not deny the importance of education in, in the production of a thoughtful, competent Christian life, and especially in Christian leadership. Um, I, I do believe that those who aspire to positions of, of spiritual authority and the life of the church should spend several years um, being properly trained. I've seen what happens when they're not. Um, and yet, what we see... In the early parts of the New Testament, um, this story in Acts, it reminds us that the spiritual authority is, is primarily the result of the Spirit's work in human life. It's primarily spiritual authority is a gift of God. It's not something that you can strive and attain in books. It is something different. It is something, um, it's subject to spiritual disciplines that make us more available toward, to, the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the guidance of God. It has a lot more to do with listening. Than, than speaking. It has a lot more to do with, um, with seeing than speaking. It's, uh, it's subject to all of the spiritual disciplines um, that we are offered in the scriptures. And I would argue that the well-educated scribes needed to hear about God, um, not just from the top, but also from the bottom, from the single mother, from the widow, from the orphan, from the oppressed, from the minority. Anyone striving for leadership needs to spend as much time as possible listening from the bottom, not from the top. Listening to those who our culture says is below them so that they can get an accurate understanding of what God is actually doing. Because the work God is actually doing is never at the top. All through the scripture, it never has been. The work that God has always done has been from the bottom. I recently heard, so I mean, I guess if you're gonna have a sort of a, each sermon I always say should have like this one-liner that like this is the sermon like this is the whole thing here I'll just here's the one-liner uh, God talks up to His people He and this is sort of what I, I I'm I'm going to go on for uh, a few minutes here about um, God is always talking up to us usually from places where we're not listening from um, rarely is God actually doing His biggest work. Through the hands and, uh, of the most powerful, the most well-educated, uh, the scribes of our day. Primarily his work is being done from the bottom. I recently um, have been privy to conversations that have been happening in some denominations that are about um, sort of um, highly intellectual denominations. And, and, and several pastors in particular were online bashing um, several minority denominations. And I'm watching this happen in real time as they're sort of collectively, um, there was one particular African-American denomination that they were basically describing as um, insinuating that they weren't well-educated enough in the things of God, that they didn't take the doctrine seriously enough, that they didn't have a good enough understanding of theology and church history and the church fathers, um, and sort of raising themselves up and pushing someone else down, and I Real quick, this isn't, hard, this isn't hard to counter this. Um, my answer to this idea, and I see this prevalent everywhere, it's sort of this underlining sort of feeling in a lot of predominantly white um, denominations that there's this intellectual purity that they have that other denominations don't have. However, my answer is to remind these Christians that they're talking about people whose faith survived the worst atrocities human beings have experienced. Their faith survived these things. Um, their faith survived slavery, oppression, lynch mobs, church bombings, and yet they gathered and did theology and worshiped and served each other, all while experiencing these things at the hands of the spiritual elite. Those were the people committing the atrocities, not letting them into seminaries, not letting them study on an equal level. And here we are, 100 years later, mourning the idea that they're not living up to your intellectual prowess. And it's crap. I have friends, highly educated friends, who lost their faith because of a freaking podcast. I have friends who have lost their faith because of reading a Richard Dawkins book. And you're talking about people whose faith survived chattel slavery. Dear God, God speaks to us from the bottom. Um, Even John Wesley, a guy who I disagree with regularly, (laughs) says this. Anyone who does not visit the poor on their own turf at least once a week is in danger of losing their eternal salvation. I agree with him. Because we we stop listening to what God is actually doing, and we assume God is doing what we are doing. Um, God talks up to his people. He's talking up to you and I every day. And I'm not just talking about social structures. I'm talking about these moments of your life. I mean, what does it mean when you read the scriptures and you realize every page of the Bible was written by an oppressed minority, every page of it? And there's these moments where they actually gain power. Like, they're this small little tribe in the middle of nowhere. I had someone recently, like, um, he, he, called, he was talking to me. He was like, he was like come on, the, the Bible's inherently racist. I mean, uh, uh, scriptures tell, God tells the Israelites, I'm with those who are with you, and I'm against those who are against you. Like, that's like, I'm like, listen to, listen. This is what I say to people who are experiencing oppression. I'm with those who are with you, and I'm against those who are against you. This is what God is saying to this ragtag band of Israelites wandering the desert with no land, no ability to make a name for themselves and be their own people, oppressed by every nation around them. And God is leading them to what God is doing. And finally, they get a land and they get a kingdom and they have a king. And once they actually gain some power, you know how, you know how the Bible starts being written? From the prophet. The king doesn't write the Bible at this point. The prophet enters in from the wilderness and he walks in, hey, king, how you doing? And he speaks boldly because he's filled with the Spirit. He speaks to him as an equal and he says, Hey, I'm going to tell you a story. And he tells this story that utterly convicts the leader and brings the leader to repentance. The scriptures are written from the bottom. The, The early Christians, this small bandit, the book of Romans, 300 Christians, maybe 300. More like 150 to 200 in reality, probably. In this empire, being rounded up and killed in danger of their lives, writing the text that inspires us to this very day, writing these letters to each other. God speaks to us from the bottom. He speaks up to us, not down to us. What does this mean for our leadership? Our leadership. It's the same leadership that Jesus showed, the towel, not the scepter. Throwing at a scepter, picking up the towel, and washing the feet of your disciples and showing them... um, Not too long ago, I was sitting on the throne of the universe and here I am now washing your feet because this is how I lead. This is how my people lead. This is how you should lead. Um, What does this mean for how we learn? We can't just spend all our time at the top with these these high level academics and reading all this. You have to spend time listening to what God is doing miles away from you. In places you would never go. Places you would never listen to. People you would never listen to you must sit with them and learn. You must read their writings. You must follow their everyday lives and ask them, what is God doing in your world? You'd be shocked at the way God is moving among them, the amount of joy that they have through trial and pain and suffering. What does this mean for for parents? I'm always trying to teach my kids the higher things and I want to pass it down to them and I want to hear from God as well so I can teach my children But, but oftentimes like I awaken to the idea that, no, God is speaking to me not through books but through my kids. This morning I was out in the hallway and my daughter came running down the hall and like jumped on me and tackled me. And I'm prepping to speak and I'm thinking about God is speaking to me from the bottom and I get hit by this nine-year-old girl. <laughs> just loving me because she saw me. She just saw me 15 minutes ago. And God is is speaking to me from the bottom. Like, that's what God is doing. Telling me a little bit about what love love really is. And in those moments, sort of redirecting, I know you're deep in this and has a lot of meaning, but by the way, uh, actually, vastly more meaning is right here. Like, all the meaning is right here. Um, God is speaking to us through our children. God is speaking to us about the role we play in God's life. About his love for us. What does this teach us about Jesus himself? The reason Jesus existed the way that he did. If God was going to work from the top, he would have been born in a palace, he would have been raised as a scribe. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, which translates to the house of bread. And it was a crappy little town and nobody liked it. And Jesus at one point takes the moniker himself and he says, well, I'm the bread of life. That's what I, that's literally why I'm the bread of life because he's born in the house of bread. I'm like, Of course, I'm from the house of bread. I'm the bread of life. Like he just, he owns it. Like I'm from the bottom. Like this is, this is how Jesus moved through the world. The people that he picked were not like, he didn't go to a scribal school and be like, I want you, I want you, I want you, I want you. He wandered around. He found a tax collector who had betrayed his own people and was collecting oppressive taxes. Like, perfect, come here. Um, Zealot, normally you would kill this guy. I'm gonna put both of you at the same desk because that's what teachers do. Um, And then I'm going to get these two brothers who are fishermen. I'm going to get these. And I'm going to get the worst, the worst disciples. And I'm going to make them mine. And we are going to lead this revolution that is going to end with the downfall of Rome. who, Who can't cope with these ideas. Because that's what Christianity brought into this world. Ideas. Led by the Spirit of God. Now, the way Jesus lived. Lowly, a peasant, wandering. It's brilliant, and it's beautiful, and he's speaking up from the bottom. And Jesus is regularly accused of speaking boldly and courageously because Jesus knows who he is, and the apostles know who they are. They are ambassadors of the Almighty God, and they have no problem speaking to people on an equal level. You guys, the goal of of Christianity is not to be led by our intellect or by our emotions or by uh, our principles or even our morals, or especially not our, our, our political parties. I mean, come on. Um, not even by our, um, um, by our discernment. We are supposed to be led by the Spirit of God. That's who we are given to follow. That's who we are given to be led by, which is why the Christians are always praying for the Spirit of God to be present with them, that when they go, they would be led by God, not their own desires, not their own ways, not their own movement, that they would be led by, God. And what is all this? If, If God is really speaking to us from the bottom, if God is talking up to us, what does this say about our mission? It's not hard to look around and realize that God is reminding you of his mission daily. That every single day, God is speaking to you about what we are doing here, about the needs of his world and his children about the desire that God has for restoration and for us to take part in the restoration of his world. God is speaking to us from the bottom. If you want to hear the mission of God, you're not going to get it from the richest, most powerful people in the world. You're not going to get an actual, they're going to have a lot of ideas about what should happen and this and that, we should move forward and this and that. But what God is actually doing will not come from their mouths. It will come from the mouths of the people at the very bottom and their faith. And the way that even though they are living oftentimes in ways that we cannot fathom or imagine, they have love and they have joy. And they seem to have things that we don't. They seem to have a faith that we don't, that we struggle with and we lack. And that is our faith, our faith is incredibly fragile sometimes. And there seems to be tough and leathery, Right? I remember years and years ago, probably about 10 or 12 years ago, we used to, um, uh, there was a particular group of homeless people at a particular corner that, that me and some people from Watermark used to spend time with, and I, I was listening to this, to this man. Um, he looks exactly as you would picture, white dude, huge beard, long hair, baseball cap, you know, just, just filthy. And we're having this conversation and he says, he's telling me about his, his life that he had, which was very normal. And he fell in hard times and this and that happened and, and I was talking about, do you sit and think about your old life and, and mourn it and you're always trying to get back there. He goes, he goes I've, learned, I've learned that life is about, is about learning to let go. And that little line was this profound piece of wisdom that I had never heard, and since then I've actually heard a couple of people say it, I don't know if you quoting some movie somewhere, life is about learning to let go. And since that day, I have been pondering this wisdom that this homeless man injected into my brain that I could not shake, that like as life moves forward, and I'm getting older, and I realize, yeah, life is about, life is about letting go of my youth. When you go up to college, life is about learning to let go of that other time when you move into a time of having kids, your life is one way. You have all this extra money and stuff. (laughs) Then you have kids and there's a whole way of life that is gone and at some way way you mourn it, but life is about learning to let go and let go of that. And then your kids are growing up and they have these beautiful moments when they're little and they're toddlers and they're running around and they're gorgeous and they grow out of that. And life is about learning to let go and move on to the next thing. And then my kids will move out one day and life is about learning to let go. My body will become frail and old, but life is about learning to let go. I will lose family and members of my family and friends, but life is about learning to let go. And then one day, I will let go of my own life. All of that came from this homeless guy. And I have pondered it. And it's given, it's somehow injected meaning into my life, like in ways that I did never occurred to me that life is about learning to let go. Like, God taught me from people I was never learning, looking to learn from. I was never trying to learn. And God spoke to me. And I've realized God is speaking to us always from the bottom, from what is going on. Learn to listen. Read their books. Follow, follow their writings. Have an ear. Listen to them. I want to ask you... Um, Please come to our, our reasoning series with, with Jamar Tisby. I'm going to have our, uh, we have a sister church, African-American church, uh, Pastor Michael Neely and his church called New Millennium. I've spoken there and I'm going to have him speak here um, one day soon and, and uh, they're going to come and join us and we need to have some conversations that most of us are never in a position to have and I want to encourage you to come. Bring your questions and listen. Try to learn. Be open to God speaking to you. Why don't our communion servers, why don't you go ahead and gather the elements and spread around the room as we move towards communion. I want you to ponder today as we go to communion the ways which God has been speaking to you about mission, about your life, about himself, about your own arrogance maybe, Um, about, about the beauty of family and love and the meaning of it all. Um, Ponder the ways that you have been avoiding actually learning from God because you have shut the lonely out, the lowly, the, those of low status. You guys can come on up. That's fine. Um, and I want you to repent of that, and I want you to begin to try and listen, and I'll do it with you. And let's try to listen to voices we've shut out, and let's hear what they have to say because there's a really good chance that we're in the position of the scribes and God is speaking to us. And I think we just may be astonished by what we hear. And so if you, uh, as we go to communion, if you need prayer, we'll have somebody in the prayer room back here that would love to pray with you. Um, if you need to get some stuff out and confess, and that's fine. That's, that's what all this is about. Um, but as we go to communion, ponder these things. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for the ways that, uh, that you speak to us. I ask that we would have ears to hear, that we would listen. I ask that... Uh, You would also teach us through our difficult experiences. Reveal to us what we don't want to go back to. Reveal to us um, what we're being brought out of through the hard times. May the difficult times be where you nurture us so that we can enjoy the peaceful times. Thank you, Father. Speak to us now in your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus if you would.